All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck sticks? What the fucksters? What the fuck, uh, holics? What the fuck, adelics? How are you? Hi. Hi, it's Mark Marin. I'm losing my mind. Chrissy Hind is on the show today. I had a, a lovely chat, an engaged and intense chat with Chrissy Hind that you will hear momentarily. Uh, obviously, she's from the band The Pretenders and now is doing uh, some of those much-loved songs on the road a bit, but also touring on her new album, Stockholm. It's just, uh, her first solo album. It was re- released in the summer. It's a great record. And you can see her actually live here in Los Angeles this Saturday at the Pantages. I may be there. I may be there. Oh my God! I'm uh, I'm not I'm not great. Things are not. Uh, I I'll just I'll be honest with you. What's happening? Um, I didn't do any coffee today, and I did not eat any nicotine today. And the day I'm recording this, it's well into the afternoon. Okay, I know I don't want to shatter your idea that we're all you know walking together or exercising together, and that this is happening in real time. But it's two thirty the day I'm recording this, which is yesterday. And um, every cell in my body is wondering what the fuck is happening. Every cell is like, we're not used to operating without the uh, juice. Can we have some of the stuff? Can we have some of the chemical stuff? Where's that stuff you usually eat? Where's both of those compounds? We're shutting down, man. That's every cell in my body. It's also going like, all right, you're going to fuck with us. We're going to fuck with you. That's the other side of the uh, cellular conversation. Yeah, keep this up. Keep it up. Sure, keep denying us what we want. And we're going to make you very aggravated and perhaps make somebody you love cry. That's what we're going to do. We're going to get together on a cellular level all throughout your body, including your brain. And we're going to seek out your loved ones and make them cry using you as a vessel if you deny us this nicotine and caffeine, you fuck. <sighs> so that's what's going on with me. I'm having tea. I'm having tea. It's interesting when you want to do the addicting thing. Like I was getting prepared to do this and talk to you, and I my body was crawling, which is crawling with the need to, uh, to take, like right now, I'm like, why isn't there one in my mouth? It's so fascinating. Fucking addiction. Because I'm strung out on that shit, dude. I, I mean, I don't even, I don't even want to really think about how much are those nicotine lozenges I'm doing? It's a lot. So my body is screaming, screaming for some relief. And uh, and that's what's going on in my in my body. I, and it's very hard for me to keep thoughts together, which is not great for this, not great for radio. Please, Mark, just give us a fucking nicotine lozenge. For God's sakes, man, what are you trying to prove? Go make some coffee and get a lozenge in your mouth. What the fuck, Captain? What? Who's in charge of this vessel? Feed us. Sorry, that was my uh, that was the leader of my cells, who will speak through me occasionally. Oh please, please, we're gonna do something stupid. We're gonna do something stupid, man. If you look, okay, look at you. See this little cell? I'm, I'm gonna kill it if you don't get us what we need. Please, Mark. One nicotine while just do one. Just do one. You can do one, man. You can just do one. Just have a half. Just have a half. And that'll be it. That'll be it. Just do a half. And that's and then I'll be good. We'll all be good in here. We'll all be good with just a half, right? Right, you guys? Just a half. Yep. Everyone's nodding yes. Just give us a half. 
I can't do it. I, I got to go for a day without it. Why, you fuck? Come on, man. Come on. Just relax. Let's just go through a day. But then it's going to be, everything's going to be normal. And then it's just like, what, what happens when we want to feel good? We just sort of like, oh, how can we make ourselves feel good? And we just kind of go like, uh, uh, I guess nothing. I guess no way. Please relax. If we could just get through three days, I think we'll all feel more comfortable. But who wants that? I want to feel juiced now. I want to feel jacked. I want to feel like we're engaged in the world and and relaxed at the same time. Just do a half. Just do a half. Just do a half. I'm not. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. Can you relax? I'm going to do uh, an advertisement now. No! Just give us a quarter. Please. Please. So I'm still recovering from Thanksgiving. I think you should know that. I'm not sure it's all out of me. I'm not even sure it's all out of me. I did, I was on Conan last night or the night before last. I'm sorry I didn't let you know. I forgot to let my mother know. I forgot it was on my agenda. I forgot it was part of the plan. You can go watch it. I talked a little bit. of You know, I did my I did jokes. There's some stuff there you guys probably haven't heard. But I, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, friends, that I did not alert you. Maybe if you were eating nicotine lozenges right now, you would be a normal person that you could talk like a person to your fans and listeners. Just give us one. I can't do it. I can't do it. You fuck. Come on. I'm uncomfortable and I'm not enjoying it. All right. Just just relax. We'll get through this. So what's been going on since Thanksgiving? Um, well, we had a little tragedy here at the house and... Um, I, you know, I feel like you're a little out of the loop with that too. I, uh, there was a cat coming around years ago, a uh, brown and white cat. Who cares? Just one lozenge. Why are you doing this? It doesn't make any sense. Just, can't we just live our lives like we used to? Just one lozenge. Uh, you're just going to have to excuse him. So there was this cat coming around. This cat came around maybe been in and out for about a decade but never hung around that often but i'd see it occasionally it's brown and white cat it showed up at at the house on the deck probably about um i don't know maybe two weeks ago and it did not look well but i didn't know what to do with it it was eating i was feeding it but it didn't look well and this is a wild cat and then i started to realize well it's dying it seems to be dying i don't know if it's old i don't know if it has the uh the aids the feline AIDS, but uh, it was beyond help. It was emaciated, it was having trouble breathing, but it was calm and I was feeding it, but there was no way I could trap it because it wasn't eating enough to get him into a cage and I couldn't grab it. So, you know, I just kept feeding it and giving it water and treating it as well as I could. And um, in hopes that it might turn around. And over the course of about a week or so, I noticed that like he didn't have really any teeth and he was not able to really breathe that well. But I just kept giving him food and sometimes he'd eat it. But he passed away when I was in Florida. And my friend Sarah, who was watching my house, had to uh, to deal with that. But said he died very peacefully. But it's, it's, so, it's so sad when things die. If you had a nicotine lozenge right now, you could deal with grief. Nothing would matter. Please stop. So we lost that guy, but my guys, everything's pretty good at the house, but it, there's a, there's sort of a cloud of loss around. He was under the house is where he was. He was living under the house, riding out uh, the last week or so of his life. Oh, sad, 
sad. Oh, God, I want it. Okay, all right. Stop, stop, stop. Pull it together. Don't feed that voice. So, um, yeah, a little post-mortem. Is that what we call it for Thanksgiving? Things went well, but I was ready to leave. I was certainly ready to leave. And uh, as I said, I'm not sure it's all out of me. So I've been, I've been doing, I've been kaling. I've been doing the healthy thing. I've been on a cereal cleanse. That's where you get uh, many cereals, uh, bran buds, bran flakes, puffins, perhaps, and you just eat that for two or three days until your colon is spick and span. That's my theory. I've never heard of anyone talk about the cereal cleanse, but uh, certainly. I, I encourage it. Serial cleanse. Maybe I invented it. I had a great time talking to Chrissy Hine. We did start uh, out talking about S. Clay Wilson, who we are both a fan of and who has you know, hit some hard times physically. I think I told you about S. Clay Wilson. The website, sclaywilsontrust.com, because he does need some help. And Chrissy Hind is right there on the front of it, talking to S. Clay. She loves him. So that's what we started talking about that, me and Chrissy. If you weren't clear who he was, he's a... One of the great, um, one of the great dark wizards of the underground uh, uh, comic art, one of the originals, Checker Demon Baby, yeah. So, so you're gonna have to forgive me, uh, my scatteredness, because. Uh, but I think it, you know, if I get through these few days, I'm gonna really level off. Oh my God, you're what a bore! Jesus Christ, do everyone a favor, just have a nicotine lozenge. You're putting me to sleep and I'm inside of you. Oh, God, Mr. Excuses. Just give us the drugs, you fuck. Okay, all right. That's uh, that's enough of that guy. Huh? No, it's not. All right, stop. All right, look, can we, I got to talk to Chrissy Hine and, uh, and you, we're just, let's just keep it together. All right, let's now go to my conversation with Chrissy Hind. Do I need headphones? No. Not if you don't want to. I mean, uh, it's not a requirement unless you want them. Well, why would I want them? Some people can regulate their voice better. Oh, but should some, I do that? Nah, just pull the mic into your face and I think you'll be fine. Some people know how to talk. I don't know how to talk. But you don't have to wear them if you just keep the mic close to your face. Do most people use them? <laughs> yeah, a lot of people do. Well, But you don't have to. You sound good. I'll, I'll let you know if you're fading. Okay, I mean, I, I'm just, I'm generally, no, I won't use them you're for good. anything if I don't have to. You're good. Okay. I don't need my glasses either, do no, I? No, you don't need, you don't. Okay. It, it is uh, an honor to meet you, Chrissy Hind. Thank you. I uh, Likewise. I, uh, here's the weird thing is I was listening to the new record and on the song, which song was it? Um, adding the blue. You brought up S. Clay Wilson. Oh yeah. Did, how much did you love S. Clay Wilson? Why'd you add a, a, a whole lot. Right? Yeah. When did, when you first saw S. Clay Wilson, didn't it blow your fucking mind? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, my nickname was Bernice at one point. Oh, for, for the character? Yeah. Yeah. The one that got the cum fix who had the penis tattoo on her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. On her arm, the wish I had one tattoo. Do you remember, like when was the first time you saw that guy stuff? Oh, you know, Zap Comics. Back and in- then I was doing a show, obviously, many years after that, 30 yeah. years after, uh, in uh, somewhere in San Francisco. And it was Valentine's Day, a uh-huh. radio show. So I said, Oh, ask Clay Wilson, won't you be my Valentine? And uh, I think someone that worked with him told him that. So then he, you know, 
sent me a message. So, of course, I was thrilled. Yeah, did he send you a little checkered demon with the message? He sent me some comic books and stuff. Really? Yeah, and then I've seen him when I've gone out there. He's come to the show, so. Yeah, but he's... But yeah, huge fan. Yeah, he's like, I... Because I, I'm going to... Uh, I, I need to... Yeah, he's not well right now, and I need to... I want to move some No, he's not in. well, but he's not dead. No, he's not dead, but he's... And, a, um, but he... Uh, yeah, he was a huge influence on me because he was... He came at a time when... That biker culture was not hadn't gone underground yet. Right. You know they hadn't brought in the RICO law to get rid of the mafia, so right. they hadn't really got rid of the cr- real criminal element of that biker culture, um, which at that time, the you know, in the end of the '60s, mid to end of the '60s, was a real heyday for those bikers because. You know, there was all these hippie chicks who, you know, and they, and everyone was having sex and right. taking birth control. And right. so it was like a free-for-all. And you were supposed to do all that. Right. And, you know, on acid, you probably did. And, you know, you were <laughs> the whole idea was not to be inhibited. Right. Because um, that was part of being free. And it was on the right. back of beat poetry. And we were reading all that stuff. So these bikers... It was a, you know, they really cleaned up. Yeah. And um, <laughs> fucking a biker on acid might be the last thing you do with your freedom. Um, well, in your mind, <laughs> you had to be careful with those guys. Yeah. And um, but but S. Clay, of course, reading his stuff because he was a biker. You know, he had a a Harley back. I guess you know he was probably where was he, when was he born? Around well, he was probably riding his bike. Where was he from? Oklahoma, I think. I'm not sure. And uh, yeah, so he was a biker probably in. in early 50s um he was a little older than me and so he kind of glamorized it much the way that robert crumb sort of sure. was you know it sort of documented the whole oh yeah the, the whole culture right um in all its insanity at the time yeah all of it yeah um and you know he wasn't really a hippie himself right uh, you know he was more of a nerdy guy you know he was a lot really, of them were like that yeah there was a lot of those guys that were documenting it that were i sort think of, the i think cartoonists probably generally were because yeah. they were kind of kind of intellectuals but they had a you know with an artistic thing and they had and to get they were, their work done they were the only ones sitting there drawing yeah. things i mean yeah, and compulsive and yeah. you know they're pretty pretty nutty um but S. Clay really, uh, I don't know if I, I would say he did a disservice to girls like me, but he, you know, he sort of had the language and the whole thing that, you know, was a turn on sure. to, to a young girl and all that biker culture and the checkered demon and all the dyke pirates and yeah. everything. But, you know, it was a dangerous thing to get involved in if you actually did get involved. Right. And if you were in Cleveland and places like I was, it was easy to access that sort of stuff. And they were the security guards at all the, you know, cool bands. So they were around. When but, you were like 18, 17? Yeah, y- yeah, younger than that even. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, uh, yeah, you kind of got a taste through right. us clay. But, you know, if you really went in there, then that's not an easy thing to get back out of. Yeah, I find that about a lot of things. About, where you know, certainly drug culture and a lot of times that the people who were like, I'm going to fucking do it and, and experience that, some things are really hard to come back from. Well, yeah, drug addiction is hard. You know, alcoholism is bad to come... I mean, a lot of things. uh, Yeah. I mean, even people, promiscuity, just becoming too many choices and getting too loose with your whole... You know, having having no yeah, having no structure, just yeah, and that was the really the thing then. It's gone very conservative now, but what I think the aftermath of a lot of that behavior is. kind of not being able to stick to the plan, not being able to commit to anything because there's, you know, a kind of a free-for-all of choice. Yeah, and also you kind of, like, you lose sense of, of, of 
your own self parameters. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're sort of like, you know, who am I? If you annihilate yourself with all these choices, eventually you're like, I'm just a beat up, uh, broken yeah. mess. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. You know, that's that's absolutely true. So, and I mean, I see it all around me. And, you know, I also am trying to not be a beaten up, broken mess. Well, but, well thank God you have a, a point of view and a voice and you can you know, manage a guitar and you have a, a, a thing. I mean, if you have a thing, you can hold on to yourself a little bit better. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> but I still feel that if I represent anyone, and I think anyone does who's in the public eye or yeah. making music or doing your thing, um, you know, I de definitely represent, you know, people who are in their 60s, divorced, ex, you know, <laughs> waitresses yeah. or, you know, right. uh, divorcees, people, single parents, people who have limped along and tried to get through it. Yeah. I don't represent um, you know, successful, you know, people who were after the money and who were after. I, I still feel my kinship is to the, um, I don't even know what it's called anymore. Rugged we, independence we, we in used a way. To, yeah, it used to be anti-establishment. Right. And that kind of doesn't even, even in the music culture now, it's, it's all about the establishment. So I'm kind of lost in it myself. I don't know. Really but but all that other stuff, I mean, as a, a as a woman and as a role model, you know, all that stuff, I think your determination and your ability to transcend a lot of, uh, you know, I, I don't I don't know if I'd call it tragedy, but certainly within the band there was that. But then the heartbreak of just getting older and all that stuff. I mean, you still, you know, you, you persevere. <laughs> That's not heartbreaking. Uh, getting yeah. older. I, you know. No, no, no. Just having whether divorces and stuff. There's heartbreak in life and you can't yeah, avoid that. Yeah, there is. But there's not more. I There's no more for me than for an estate right. agent. You That's know, right. I, absolutely. So. That's absolutely true. So how do you think like when you first you know came out of, where'd you grow up in? Which part of Ohio? Uh, Akron. And you still have a place there? No. No. Are you done with Ohio? No, I did have a vegan restaurant there, which was very successful, but I wasn't you know, I, I didn't set it up right. I wanted something as my parents were getting older to engage myself with when I was there. But I um I went against the advice of all my advisors who, you know, right. I was the only investor. I didn't know anything about restaurants, but I, I did it anyway. Yeah, yeah, that's what everyone told me. Right. And it did go under. And uh, it, but to anyone that went there, it thought it was a big success. But, right. you know, like the fellow that was supposed to be managing it like didn't pay taxes and stuff like that so it yeah kind of went a, under. there's a lot of rogues in the restaurant yeah. business it's like the rock business there's a lot of guys undercover somehow uh, avoiding yeah. some stuff but i take responsibility because i set it up and i'm you know it's very easy um to try to do something and then when it doesn't work out you know, I think a lot of people always find excuses why it didn't work for them. But you know, I'm I I always will take the responsibility that you know, I got myself there and it didn't work out and I I didn't manage it properly. I did. Yeah, it was it down happens. to me in the end. Yeah, but it was a good uh, restaurant. Yeah. from what I understand it was amazing. Yeah, it was really great. It was you... called the Vegetarian, and you know, I'd still like to do one. But next time, I would make sure I had people in place that knew what they were doing. Get some other people's money. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I took a real kick in the teeth myself. But in Akron, they probably thought I was rolling in it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's what it's like when you go back to a, I'm not going to say a small town. Akron wasn't a small town. But, you know, when you leave a place and then you come back and you try to, to put something into the community and sure. get back into the downtown and give it some, 
you know, people still oh, see you as a little bit of an outsider, and I'm not too sure how much they appreciate it. So it was part of a thrust to sort of reinvigorate the downtown of Definitely. Akron. Definitely. Right. That was part of my whole... Did that succeed at all? I haven't been well, to Well, yeah, it did, because Akron, like all those other American cities, just collapsed when, right. the, you know, the, I I'm not going to go... Cleveland, Detroit, yeah, sure. you know the story. All oh, the, yeah. you know, the industry collapsed, and then for a whole lot of other reasons that you know we could talk about for hours. Sure, sure. Uh, everyone bailed out of the city, and you know the train stations closed down. There's no public transport to speak of. Uh, you know, unless yeah. you're, and it just everyone bailed out to the suburbs, suburbs and yeah, it became the mall culture. Yeah. So I went back yeah. and tried to put my restaurant in the downtown and tried to say, "Come on, everyone, let's, let's do go." It. <laughs> You know, yeah, I yeah, get on the yeah. bus and I get the local paper, the Akron Beacon Journal, and say, come on, public it. transport's for everyone. Yeah. And everyone was like standing there going, no, it's not. And I was like, no, come on, it <laughs> is. Oh, I'm sorry. But, <laughs> you championed it. You put yeah, yourself out I in front tried. of it. I tried. I tried. Well, what's interesting to me is like, uh, you know, because of, of where you're at and what you grew up in, like I watched last night, I watched a documentary on the MC5 and, you know, Cleveland, uh, Detroit and, and a lot of those bigger industrial cities had a great rock and roll scene. Like the, like the MC5, I'd never seen that thing. That, it was we had astounding. a great, well, the reason that we had such a great rock and roll scene is because we didn't really have a scene. Right. So, you know, you had people in New York, I mean, there were pockets of activity. In New York, there was the Philly sound, the Detroit sound, there was, you know, all these places that every everywhere, of course, had its own radio station and its own sound. It was yeah. very regional. Right. And that all went to the, you know, that that was destroyed by, well, MTV came in and it all became very uniform. And then, and you know. satellite killed everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so and again, clear channel another, and corporate yeah, programming. The corporate thing. When I went back to Cleveland after I got in my band, and it was now in the 80s, and when I went back and I saw what happened to radio, I was in tears. Because, oh, yeah. you know, I grew up with WMMS, and our, 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 the disc jockey was a guru right. who showed us everything. And yeah. everything I know about music, I learned from listening to the radio. What DJ? Well, there was Billy Bass yeah. was the, the uh, guy there. They, they, these were guys that could make choices. About yeah. music. They made... Had a point of view. Whatever was going on that day, that's... If it was raining, they play Rainy Day by Jimi Hendrix. Right. Like whatever it was, you know, Rain by the Beatles. They would just make up the play playlist yeah. according to... And when I went back and saw that the DJ had no power and that he was given a playlist... That's hard. I was... Anyway, but then it went on to college radio and then it... And, you know, I know I'm older and I'm old-fashioned that way because I loved radio, but I've never got so good with... The technology for me, I just turn it on, and yeah, even too. when it went to buttons, I yeah. got it started to lose my place. Yeah, I, I always just turn on the radio. I don't make a lot of choices, but I usually listen to NPR now. So, who were the people that that had the most influence on you as a teenager that sort of defined your brain rock wise? Oh well, I mean, I was in the heyday of all the best stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was fourteen when the first Beatles album came out. So right. you know, that was just everyone. so you were like wide open, and totally. there you go. Yeah, it <laughs> was all there. I remember where I was standing when I saw the Jimi Hendrix's album. When I was, you know, when I first saw it. Yeah, I went to where were my, you standing? In someone's house, you know, just in their basement. And they said, "Look at this." Was it their brothers or was it theirs? Did they just buy it? Uh, it was uh, someone's. Yeah, maybe some. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I can was... remember when I went to Disc Records in the Summit Mall, and I was going through the bins, and mm -hmm. I picked up an album, and I thought, "Freak out! What does that mean?" And I opened it up, and I was like, "I took it to Danny Smoot, who was the D, you know, the working behind Zappa's the Zappa's Freak Out." 
Yeah, and I uh-huh. said, will you play some of this? And he played Help, I'm a Rock, and it was like this sort of <laughs> Mind beat poetry, right. this sort of jazz rock. Yeah. So I bought that, and then you'd go home and call everyone and say, you've right. got to hear this. Zap and is alive. It was amazing. Yeah. So I went. I, I grew up through, you know, there was, of course, uh, Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels yeah. were just up there. Yeah. Um, there was... Uh, Paul Butterfield Blues Band was out there. Oh, my God. All the great stuff was coming through Cleveland. Everything came through Cleveland. Because it was down the street, kind of. Well, because Cleveland was like a testing ground because we didn't have our own scene so much. I Mm -hmm. mean, there's a few things that came out of Cleveland. Bobby Womack was from Cleveland. There was, you know, a few bands. Um, Ruby and the Romantics. um, The Outsiders. Uh Um, There was a few things. But because we didn't have our own scene, people were more collectors and listeners right because they weren't out right grooving they were in the house you know they were sitting by the radio so you actually took more in probably i think so i think we had a better education and when you know when bowie did his first tour of america the first stop was cleveland ohio when lou reed uh, all the bands did you go yeah you saw bowie on his first tour. of course i went to i was standing outside his sound check (laughs) um what so what album would that have been Hunky Dory was oh out, and just the uh, Ziggy Stardust had come out now. So that was like was just, full on. Yeah, it was right, right, right at the moment. And um, and you saw Lou on what what album? Lou, well, I saw the Velvet Underground there, and then when Lou, that's probably one of his first stops when he went solo. So you knew to go see all these people. Fuck yeah! Yeah, Are you but kidding? They, but those weren't necessarily mainstream acts, were they? At that time, I mean, there, was it mainstream? Wasn't the term right? So you would go and would it be packed out? Like how big were the rooms when you saw Bowie? I don't know. They were, you know, like the Agora. Uh-huh. They were, you know. Were they clubs or, or concerts? Kind of standing clubs with a, yeah. Um, God, that must it have been wasn't, There was no mainstream. It didn't exist. It wasn't, the word, how, the term household name didn't exist. If you were a rock But there was fan, still a circuit of like old rockers, right? That did, you know, like hit music. Well, I mean, the people that were enthusiasts, there might be like 12 in your high school. Right, exactly. It wasn't everyone. Right. So, you know, yeah. if you went to a place like that, you saw everyone else from Northeastern Ohio who happened to like the Rolling Stones. I saw them with, I've seen every Rolling Stone lineup. Yeah. I was My girlfriends and I were 14 when we went and saw them with Brian Jones. Um, really? Yeah. I was I there, could, man. I, I wish I That's that. how I can be the leader of a rock band, because I listened to the radio and I saw these guys. But you saw Brian Jones. I mean, I've yeah. never talked to anybody that saw Brian Jones, I don't think. Like, it's, it must have been amazing. I can't even imagine what that was like. And I'm a Stones fan. Yeah. The first time I saw them- It was amazing. It, it was like 1981. No, this was like uh, uh, 66. Yeah. yeah, I know. I missed it by yeah. 10 years. Well, I didn't see everything. I didn't see Hendrix and, you know, I yeah. didn't see the Beatles. Um, but, you know, I saw what I could. So what was the big switch? I mean, when did, because, uh, you know, I know that, you know, music changed drastically and, and you were sort of, you felt the, 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 the movement to do something with it. When did that start to happen for yourself? Oh, well, I would have liked to have done something, you know, when I was listening to Blind Faith and The Cream and, right. you know, Traffic but and all the bands. you weren't playing at all? Yeah, I had a guitar, but, you know, I was a girl and I wasn't, I couldn't, I wasn't good enough to play along to the radio. Right. And I, I was too, I wouldn't have gone with the guys in the art room and gone to a jam on the weekend because right. I just would have been too, you know, I mean, I some of my girlfriends played. Right. You know, I was still shy around guys. Right. Um, and I didn't want to say hey look i learned born in chicago you know i would have i just couldn't have but i had my guitar and yeah um and (laughs) i um 
you know, I had my Johnny Winter albums, and I, you know, I loved it. I my John Hammond albums. I mean, I loved that. John Hammond, those are those are, the older John Hammond records are great, amazing. They're great. Yeah, I was just listening to Johnny Winter yesterday, but uh, it, fantastic. Uh, still alive and well. I mean, that's the one I. I, I had the to. one where with the black sleeve and his reflection in the, in the oh yeah the, yeah, the yeah black guitar like uh, it was like mirror yeah reflect? with yeah, a yeah. little second winter on it and everything was I it? don't know what it was yeah called. yeah God he could play man oh. <laughs> Amazing. Um, I actually saw him once backstage somewhere at a festival, and I couldn't even walk up and say anything to him. Yeah, I um, was supposed to interview him when he, big and fan. like a week or two uh, after he passed away. It was pretty, uh, pretty sad. It was amazing about him is that how pure blues he went. Like he started with that rock, and and then he just went straight up blues. It's great. Uh, it was a great, great time. So the music was was definitive um when did you first start to say like i'm gonna do it well you know first i had to leave the states and then i went to over to and i would have maybe wanted to be a singer i mean i tried a little something in ohio with with a couple guys we did i was too i couldn't get on i was too afraid yeah um Why'd you have to leave the States, did you think? Well, it was just time for me to go. You know, like that S. Clay Wilson influence didn't work very, out very well for me. <laughs> you hit the and wall? I needed to get out. And, you know, things, I didn't know what I was going to do there, but I wanted to, you know, see the world. That's what I wanted to do. So, How I'm old were you? 22 when I went to England. And what was the reason? I wanted to go, to, I wanted to go somewhere. And you just moved there? Yeah. <laughs> what did you, what'd you, what'd your parents say? Um, I think they probably didn't know what was what was happening and you just left pretty much yeah yeah do you have siblings i have an older brother yeah he's yeah. there he's in england no he's, he's no in he's ohio? in ohio yeah he's yeah. played in the same band for 45 years the numbers band in ken ohio he was the musician terry hind he was this great musician i was just terry hind's little sister so what kind of music did he uh, play? he's a jazz jazz saxophonist really uh-huh and is he is he great? Yeah, he's really great. So I mean, you, he's really he he really is great. So you grew up with that in the house. Yeah, but he always he would say, "Christy, you know, in ten years' time, you won't even people won't even know what rock and roll was because he was he came from a jazz background. <laughs> he thought jazz was going to win. Well, you know, maybe it should have. You know, <laughs> maybe uh, as a musical form, it should have. I mean, it's definitely got dumbed down. You know, there's no question about it. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially as it's going now. But I mean, and, and a, there's no bands anymore. That's kind of over. It's it's a dying breed, but at the time, uh, you know, in the mid '60s is when jazz was in its heyday. I he, saw Mose Allison just stop touring. Oh, really? Huge influence, another one. Anyway, I took off, and I um, then it was around the time that punk started to happen. That I at that point, by the time I was 24, I thought I was too old to get in a band. You know, back in those days, 24 was you were already, you know. Yeah, people were in bands when they were fifteen and sixteen, right. and they went out and played. And they, I mean, that's why the Beatles, Led Zeppelin, and those guys—they all could make albums in three days, their first albums, because they'd been playing it for years. Right. Um, right. And they could play. Yeah. And yeah. It's the opposite of how people make records today. They right. can't they, play, and it takes them two years. Right. Um, <laughs> and there's no one in the room with them when they're playing. Yeah, and they've never the played in front of anyone, right. so they get a huge hit, and they've never been on stage. But so, those, you know, it's those guys who played their dues—they had that one mind thing, right? And they understood. Yeah, they played. Other. They yeah. could play. And every band, I mean, every town in the States had a bar band, a local bar band, which is what Bruce Springsteen was. He was like the local bar band that European kids never had. In Asbury Park. Yeah. Yeah. But, you was know, it, we all had one. Like what, in my town, there was, we had a band called the Brambles. I mean, we everyone had a, a, a band that sure. everyone went to see in the 60s. Did you, uh, was Iggy around when you were in? 
Iggy was, but I met, I got introduced to Iggy when I became interested in David Bowie because to me Iggy and the Stooges would have still been a little bit like a local thing and I was thought I wanted English music so right. when I saw that Bowie was listening to him then I globbed on then I went up to see well Bowie played in Cleveland then we drove to Detroit to see him and um this is on his first tour, and uh, you know, I was I would never leave the place when everyone was like, "Come on, Chris, we yeah. have to drive a hundred miles. Let's go." And I was I couldn't take my eyes off the stage, even after the crew was breaking down the gear and the lights were up. <laughs> yeah. And there he was, Iggy Pop. He walked by me. Yeah, did you and say anything? He, of course not. <laughs> but I mean, he looked at me, and I looked at him, and um, you know, that's it. I couldn't talk for the next three hours. I was he's sort of stricken, astounding performer that guy yeah i mean he was just walking yeah by even, and even then that it was, was great right? oh i mean i was just so and that changed everything for me and i thought that yeah i thought that in england they would understand iggy more because i read an article of someone that anyway it's a long story so, it's a long story and it's probably boring but no, it's not i got boring. there we're in the end i got there in the end but so you were hung up on on the british rock yeah but i like the buffalo springfield and sure. crosby Stills i get it and, you know you i thought liked your all future was in england somehow well i knew that i just had to go yeah so when did you get there what year was uh, 1973 so what was going on um mm, well i what walked were you up, doing well i had to walk up i said i was with a friend and i said take us to a hotel so they took us somewhere in london uh near the bayswater Road. i didn't know anything about london so i we went to some kind of a hotel or yeah. hostel, and then I walked up to the top of the road where there was these sort of like, um, like a street market. I'd never yeah. seen anything like that, and I just went to every stall and asked if anyone could give me a job because you know I had, of course I was going to have to work. I only had a couple hundred dollars, right? And then someone agreed to give me a job, and yeah, you know, it just went on from there, selling handbags, and then I met you know it just went on from there, and uh, within about five years I done some traveling around i went back over to paris and then back to cleveland by the time i wanted to get into a band because i what wanted bands to... were you seeing then though like in 73 i mean who well was playing? that was a bad time for music i mean the, of course the new york dolls were about to emerge todd rundgren had been doing some really great stuff here I'd seen here yeah i'd seen him before i went over when he was with those sales brothers and he had a guy, a guy named um, Yves Labat or jean Labat, jean something i interviewed Hans in tucson Right. Well, they were the Hunt yeah. brothers were there, and um, yeah. I mean, I when I got over to London, no, it wasn't. You know, I was thinking that, that Mark Boland would be playing down the street, but yeah. you know, it was kind of the end of that. I'd seen him. I drove driven up to uh, Toronto with a friend, and he was playing when I was still in that, in, uh, in Ohio. You saw T Rex. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. So you you were like a, a full on fan totally that was are you kidding whole, that was the you know that was your life of course <laughs> big time with that that's that was it you just loved rock totally that's like, what it was and so when you went to england it was more to sort of get your head together than anything else kind of and to start see the world and you know see what i was going to do and um did I, you study uh, or did you go to school or anything no <laughs> um <laughs> i mean <laughs> I well, I mean, I'd gone to Kent State for a little while cause by, to buy some time, right? But, you know, yeah. I started there when I was seventeen, and it was the it was this that summer the first Neil Young album was out, and the first Tim Buckley out, or not the first Tim Buckley, um, Happy Sad had just come out. So that's what I did that summer was listen to those two records. That was and, it. That was it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wasn't doing real good in school, 
And then, uh, yeah, there was a little, there was a course, and I went to Mexico. That was the one time I'd been there with my school course. I kind of flunked that too, but I. You saw Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then there was the shootings at Kent State, and then they closed down the school and all that. Oh, so you were there? Before, oh, yeah. Oh, oh, my God. Like, because, like, just having seen this documentary last night about the MC5 in, like, 67, 68, 69. 70 i mean i can't even imagine because i didn't live it the amount of of weird chaos and unpredictability that was just everywhere so the music sort of like reflected all that yeah well it was a certainly an interesting time with you know the vietnam everyone was taking a lot of drugs um of which we're still limping away from that you know that was a tragedy in the end because it started out as mind expanding pot right. and that sort of thing but then of course you got the criminal element in there because it was illegal so you had to buy it from yeah you know people that were selling you anything they could right and then the drugs got and you know, people get addicted and they yeah. started buying speed and heroin yeah killed a lot of people sure did yeah. and then um yeah yeah. I mean, alcohol was not the drug of choice, but the, uh -huh. as we know, that's probably the most insidious because it's oh, been yeah. legal, and that's sure. the one that's killed most people. Yeah. And usually, when there's, you know, some sort of weird cocktail, it's alcohol related. Yeah, that yeah. Is what I. It's persistent. Keeps yeah. going. Keeps yeah. giving. Uh, yeah. yeah. It, it, it takes a licking, but it still keeps. That's ticking. right. So, what was the first sort of forays into, like, you know, standing up with your guitar and getting involved? I mean, how did you transition from selling handbags in Yeah, well, England? I had a bunch of different jobs, and then that punk thing was happening. You know, I went over to someone's house to get a cat from this woman, a kitten. Yeah. And I walked in, and uh, I think she was a pot dealer. And um, I heard this little band, and I said, what's going on there? And she goes, that's my son's band. And I went, I walked in the next room, and it was just in a little flat, and I said, they were like 14-year-old kids, and I thought, <laughs> yeah. wow, that, that, I thought they were amazing. And yeah. I said, they were playing sort of kind of heavy metal type thing. And I right. said, well, why don't you guys play like Velvet Underground if you can only play three chords? And they went, well, what's that? And I said, well, here. I took the guitar and showed this kid how to play White Light, White Heat. Right. And I could see them looking at me like, well, how come mom's <laughs> friend knows how to do that? And that, that it occurred to me. I thought, oh, yeah, I can play. Right. Because I'd been doing that, you yeah. know, in Ohio, obviously. And I thought... Wow, I thought, I wonder if I could manage these guys. I mean, I've got no business, uh -huh. nothing to do. I've never, I'm the most hands-off with business person I've ever met in this business. Right. But I thought I was too old to be in a band. I thought, well, maybe I can guide them somehow. Yeah. You know, because yeah, I was maybe 23, 24 at the time. And and did you? No. You That's when I, I <laughs> but I kind of got the taste for the guitar again. Yeah. And I thought, well, you know, and then around then I started, it was just before punk, and then I started meeting a lot of people, and everyone was at it trying to get a band together. And that's when I kind of got in there, and being a girl wasn't kind of a novelty then. It was very non-discriminatory, the punk thing. So anyone could do anything. You didn't even have to play. Right. I mean, you didn't have to be able to play. In fact, it was kind of a disadvantage. So, you know, everything was going <laughs> in my favor. <laughs> and and you, so you saw the, that scene sort of taking form. Totally. I was there. I knew, played with everyone in that scene, and I knew everyone Who in the scene. Who were those kids? Did they end up Well, anywhere? I mean, I was working for v Vivian Westwood and Malcolm McLaren in their shop for a little while. I knew all the guys. Where was that, on like that, King's Road or the somewhere? The King's Road, yeah. Yeah. Um, I knew all the guys that were 
got into the Sex Pistols, The Damned. I was going to do a band with them. Some of the guys in The Clash I started working with before they became The Clash. I knew all of them. I was in there trying to get a band together. How'd you meet them all? Just from working at the store? Or just just from it... being in London, yeah. I just met everyone that, yeah. And what was McLaren like? Um... He was a, I, I loved him. I thought he was, I really looked up to him, actually. I thought he was really a unique, he wasn't a hippie. That was the thing about Malcolm and Vivian. They weren't hippies. They weren't coming from that. They were more coming from a sort of teddy boy, student intellectual kind of thing and uh -huh. very English. So it was kind of new to me. So I found it fascinating and I looked up to them because they had this whole other way of, you know, this look was different and than that, anything I'd seen. And I, I, and they loved, like, the New York Dolls. They, Malcolm was going to do something with them. Um, and we talked about doing something to, together, and he tried to help me, too. But So in, in looking at it, do you think that when the New York Dolls sort of happened, because, I mean, I, you know, I read the, the Legs McNeil book, and he sort of thinks that they were the beginning of, of what became American punk anyways. But do you think that what Malcolm was seeing was interpreting this fashion? I mean, did it start with fashion? Uh, well, I would say more of an anti-fashion. Right. I, it didn't but it seem did, like it at the time. defined look. Well, they defined the look, Malcolm right. and Vivian. They designed all that stuff. They designed it all. And that became the standard. You, you, well, people copied it. The idea was to do your own thing. Right. But, you know, it was such a great look and everyone, you know, so they, they just certainly, you know, people are natural born followers. If you see a band and it looks great, you want to look like that. And it was completely anti-establishment. Well, yeah, it was. That was the idea of it. Even yeah. more so, like, because then they had to make it different than the 60s anti-establishment. Yeah, it was very, very different. It and was almost anti-60s anti-establishment. Sure it was. Yeah. I mean, I remember standing in a club called The Vortex just after the Roxy closed, and Elvis Presley died, and they, they were cheering. I mean, I thought that was out of order. But that was the tone of things at the time, was like, you know, right. the king is dead. They wanted it all to go. Right. Um did you, but, I mean, this was six months after Punk had, you know, Punk only lasted about six months. So this was toward the end of it. When it the only lasted six months in yeah. earnest, do you yeah. think? Yeah. Like, what were those six months and who were the 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 prime movers in that? Well, the Sex Pistols, right. the Clash then came along after the Sex Pistols, the Damned came along then after that. Uh, there was the Adverts, then the Slits came along. There was, um, I mean, this is just in London. Of course, there was all over the UK, there was the Buzzcocks were happening there was the um, undertones. There was all then. There was all that two tone stuff going on from like Coventry, Bristol, the ska stuff, all the ska stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, UB40 was a little reggae band who I saw in a basement somewhere and said, "Hey, come and you know." By then, around that time, I'd got my band together. So this was over a period of three years, but but the punk thing didn't last very long. No. Yeah. Did you see the the Sex Pistols? Oh yeah, a lot. Of course. Was it a mess? Uh, it was always, um, you never knew what was going to happen. <laughs> but you come from like, you know, they, like you said that these, you, you had a tremendous respect for people that played and that, you know, made amazing music. You grew up with yeah, that. Yeah, but now, and now it had got a bit flabby and it was getting a little, little bit prog rockish. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. when the Sex Pistols came along, it was a very, you know, uh, you know, up yours to all that and it was really deconstructing everything and bringing it back to basics and in England it's very tribal too so but it, and I like that that knowing the plane it was more attitude than plane because the plane had become too important right in music but so. a lot of but a lot of those people that you mentioned could really play I mean you know the Such clash as, well the clash could play well yeah they were pretty basic yeah well yeah as soon as you really got serious about playing it started not being so punky anymore it, was that what killed punk was it people pretty much yeah <laughs> 
people said like, well, we got the look, let's play. Yeah, for and real. also if if no one could really play, and there wasn't, that was frustrating too because people, you know, guitar players wanted to learn their craft and to get better. So, um, and and was the end of punk sort of around like probably you, about seventy eight? Because your band. You know, that, that's very well, my band wasn't a punk band because no, it's very Jimmy Scott, last of the great guitar heroes, if if you ask me, James Honeyman Scott, he didn't really like punk. He was in Hereford, which was out in the sticks. And, you know, to him it was kind of angry and it wasn't musical. He liked ABBA and the Beach Boys, which you couldn't <laughs> say at the time. But he was only, you know, he was 23. And that's yeah. what he liked. So, you know, and he came into it. And how'd you meet him? Through Pete Farndon, who was also from Hereford. Lemmy told me to see, look up this guy who was, I was looking for a band. It's a long story, man. You know, I could. Lemmy did? Yeah, Lemmy was another. That was the whole other side that you didn't didn't even mention was that that metal side of. Oh, Lemmy was very instrumental in my uh, history. Without him, the pretenders wouldn't have happened. Well, how'd you meet him and how does that unfold? Because he hung out with all the bikers and stuff in, in London. So, of course, you know, I gravitated. That was your thing. Uh, it seems to have been. Um, and when I got there, that's who I met. And then, you know, and they were all, you know. In fact, Lemmy, the first time I met him, I was in a shop on the King's Road. And yeah. he, he walked up to me and he stuck a, he didn't say anything. He just stuck this silver tube he had around his neck on a chain in, yeah. a, in a bag yeah. of white powder and, you know, shoved it up my snout yeah. and walked away. I was up for three days. Um, <laughs> that was the first meeting? Yeah. yeah. We didn't talk. Um but Lemmy was always around, and Lemmy was coming. Hawk, uh, Hawkwind was shutting down, and he was about to start Motorhead, and Motorhead had its own thing. You know, there was there was also T Rex, and some of those bands had been pre glam, were sort of still into this kind of hippie. You know, so there was, and there was a lot of uh, there was in that Notting Hill area. There was a lot of Rastafarians too. They influenced the punk thing a lot. In fact, in London. The only music that the punks listened to was reggae music. I never heard anything else in anyone's house. No one listened in the Roxy Club. All they listened to was reggae music. Yeah, yeah. So um, that was a big influence, and it had an influence on the music. Um, but Hawkwind and well, Motorhead now they kind of lived outside of it all because you know it was Lemmy, right? And Lemmy's always Lemmy. Yeah. And Did so you like Hawkwind? Was, well, it was a little before my time. I probably arrived. There was Hawkwind and the Pink Fairies and those bands. Right. The first band I saw when I got to London was Kilburn and the High Road. Uh, Kilburn and the High Roads, the 100 Club. And that was then became, uh, well, that was Ian Drury's band. Okay. So Lemmy is, how did he introduce you to, to... Well, he told me to, I went over and, you know, I was talking to him and he said to keep my eye out for a guy that he thought could be a drummer for me. And, um, you know, I was kind of feeling sorry for myself because nothing was happening. I'd been trying to get a band together for a long time. And he said, well, no one said it was going to be easy. And uh-huh. I was really shocked that I thought he was going to be a little more simpatico. So he was a guy, his crew or who you uh, you would hang out with. He was sort of like a big brother, buddy kind of uh, thing. Yeah, he wanted to fuck me, you know. Yeah. But, I, but You didn't relent? Well, you know, this isn't a kiss and tell. So, um, <laughs> but I... So I, okay. you know, I went over and I said, look, man, you know, I, nothing's happening. Yeah. And he said, well, check this guy out named Gas. So I, anyway, then I saw this guy in the street one Gas? Saturday. Gas Wild, his name was. Yeah. So I saw the guy that 
Lambie described on the street, and I opened the window. I said, is your name Gas? And he went, yeah. I said, you want to get in a band? He went, yeah, but I don't have any drums. I said, I'll sort that out. So <laughs> I brought him into it, and yeah. then through this guy Gas, he was from Hereford. Yeah. And through him, I met Pete Farndon, who was from Hereford. Pete Farndon was my bass player then. The original bass player, And through him, yeah. we got James Honeyman Scott, and then we found Martin. So they were all from Hereford. Right. So they were completely outside of punk. They, they were completely outside of punk. What were well, they coming Pete from? Was, Pete was very enamored with punk. Right. But he was more enamored with the Heartbreakers when they came to town. And when they came to town about heroin, it was the end of punk. Right. Um, and Pete got into all that. Um, so Johnny Thunders changed it. Yeah. yeah. He did. Yeah. And that, <laughs> and, that, and that was sort of what became known as American punk was that trip well they weren't considered punk they were musically they were the first band that came to the Roxy Club where they could actually play and everyone was blown away and just loved them because they were even more fucked up than the punks right but they could play so I mean you know people really were very respectful of the Heartbreakers great tone they were amazing oh man and I mean of course I mean I saw uh the New York Dolls with Malcolm and Vivian actually when they came over. Yeah. And then uh, the first gig I had as the Pretenders was I was invited by David Johansson to play with his band, the David Johansson band, up at Barbarella's in Birmingham. And so, what was uh, uh, Jimmy Scott then? What was his? St how did you guys sort of meld minds around what you were going to do? Your tone. Well, I needed to get to put some demos together, and I got actually I wanted. I there was rumors that Motorhead might break up, and. Um, uh, I knew that the, someone said that the Heartbreakers kind of had their eye on on Filthy Animal Taylor, who was their, you know, kid drummer. Yeah. And I wanted I wanted Phil in my band because I had this idea that my band would be like a motorcycle club, but with guitars. You know, I mean, I thought I was a badass. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and I didn't want anyone else sniffing around Phil in case they did break up. But of course, I couldn't approach him because he was in motor. I, I wouldn't have dreamt of doing such right. a thing. But I thought, well, what if we say that we're auditioning for a guitar player and we ask Phil to help us and then he'll see what we have to, to offer. Uh -huh. And then if they do break up, he would have, you know, yeah. we'd be able to yeah. put a bid in Remember for us? him. Remember us? Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, they didn't break up. But we got, <laughs> we had to get a guitar player yeah. in to do this faux audition. Right. So Pete said, well, I know a couple guys in Hereford. And I said, okay. And he goes, well, there's a local guitar hero and then this little brother of this girl I used to go out with. And I said, well, get, you know, get the guy in the place, you know, whichever. So he started calling. I said, hang on a minute. The local guitar hero, he's married and has a kid, doesn't he? And he went, yeah. And I said, put the phone down. I said, call the other kid. <laughs> yeah. So he called the kid and that was Jimmy Scott. So he came to town, and I don't think we liked each other much. He yeah. saw me. I was too angry. Right. And But we ended up eventually making these demos we needed to make together. And as soon as I listened to the demos, I knew that I'd found my guitar player. Yeah, he's astounding. So I had to figure out how to get him to leave his girlfriend and his job and to leave Hereford. But he <laughs> he didn't like punk, but he loved Nick Lowe. Right. And uh, so I knew Nick Lowe. So I thought, that's it. I'll just get Nick Lowe to say that he'll produce our first single and then Jimmy will have to join us right so I left the stuff over with Nick yeah it was all songs I had written except for this one cover from an old Kinks album that I remembered and then of course Nick didn't really wasn't into my songs so much because they were too angry but he loved what he called the Sandy Shaw song so I said we'll do it we'll do it so I called Jimmy Scott I said he will, Nick Lowe's going to produce us but before I because I knew that would seduce Jimmy right but before I even got a chance to ask him he goes wait before you say anything I, I've been listening to the demos and can, it, can I be in the band? 
so, so he was already in. So he was already in. And then Nick did the first Pretender single, which was Stop Your Sobbing. And that was huge. It was pretty big, I think. I think it was in the top 20 or something. Well, it, well, so that was really the evolution out of punk was it, Nick Lowe was kind of elemental in helping your yes, sound. Yes, big time. Nick Lowe had a lot to do with my, you know, with, uh, without Nick, I... I would have stumbled along. I wanted him to do my album. Yeah. He was busy. But by then, of course, I knew Chris Thomas, who I'd met through Chris Spedding, mm-hmm. who I'd met in Paris when I was doing something. And I took Chris Spedding to go see the Sex Pistols because he wanted to get in on something. And, uh, you know, Spedding ended up producing their demos. And I'd sung on Spedding, some of Spedding's solo albums. And that's where I met Chris Thomas, who then went on to produced the Sex Pistols' first record, and he did the Pretenders. We considered him the fifth Pretender for the th- first three albums. It's a completely different game than the Sex Pistols, too, right? I yeah. mean, you guys were totally, you know... Yeah, well, we were musical. Yeah. <laughs> that was but that was Jimmy Scott, see? And then I didn't realize that I had this... I was kind of in denial of my musicality, because, you know, I thought, you know, it was all about... Not really heavy metal, but, you know, I was more deconstructed and angry... And that melodic thing, I kind of had forgot about that. But, you know, I mean, I grew up listening to James Brown, you know. I was listening to real melodic stuff. But you but you have a beautiful melodic voice. And you well, just were in denial about it? Or? I just didn't, I wasn't, I, you know, when you, I didn't know what it was yet because I hadn't really sung yet, so. But, but the first Pretenders album feels like your voice is fully realized. Uh, well, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> I don't know where that came from. And uh, I mean, I had only been in one band at back in Ohio, and that was with a guy I met in Cauga Falls. And he put a little band together called Sat Sun Matt. We did one one show in a church hall of covers, and I was petrified. Anyway, I met him years later. Him and his band um, Devo came to town, and I said, "Hey, man, what was that band? <laughs> Remember the band we were in? What did it mean?" And he went, "Saturday Sunday Matinee," and that was Mark Mothersbaugh. That's who I had my first band with. Really? Yeah. And- and when I was about sixteen. And well, that well, that's the other unmentioned Cle- uh, Ohio band, isn't it? They yeah, were, they, there they, were there was a few, and they were like they were a whole other thing. I mean, outside of punk and outside of whatever happened at the end of the sixties, and outside of pop, Devo like took you know this art rock idea and just elevated it to a level. Yeah, that they no were one, yeah, they were the acceptable face of quirky. Yeah, and I don't I don't like wacky stuff much, you know. But not a big they, residence fan or anything like that. <laughs> I I wasn't that. I mean, I like the Ramones. I wasn't that keyed on the New York scene it was a bit arty for me i didn't wouldn't have put it in those terms at the time even was, even in retrospect you're not well in retrospect things are always different you right know, we rewrite history and bands sure. that didn't seem very important at the time suddenly become but i would think you'd like television i probably didn't listen to much of that remember we were only listening to reggae music when <laughs> i heard first heard reggae music it stopped me in my tracks and i thought this is the future right i thought i'd seen the future and i was shocked that it never took off in America. I thought it would everything would change with reggae. But it influenced that punk thing. And then when it came into... Then disco came, and that fucked everything up. Fucked everything up bad. But, but when... That was like such a left turn. Like, why, why were we well, in there? That's when know. I went to high school. Is like punk had sort of not really took traction in the States, you know, in the late 70s. And there was just fucking disco everywhere. And then all of a sudden, the knack happened. And that was the end of it. Well, yeah... <laughs> Um, you know, because reggae had a sort of a spiritual base. Sure. And I think, you know, black American music started getting a real smash smash and grab mentality. Right. And they didn't want the spiritual stuff so much, you know, they and I it's it's a weird one the way that all I mean it still never really took off reggae, but it certainly influenced 
Ameri- uh, what would you, house music yeah. in England was mm-hmm. always very, very heavily influenced by... Um, I mean, James Brown was the guy that influenced everything. Yeah. Even reggae, he influenced. Yeah. He's the, he was the man. So, all right. So the first album happens and you're on the map in a big way. I mean, like people, I mean, I remember everybody, you, you were huge. Did you feel it? Did you like... Not really, no. I've never felt... Th- I always feel the same. I don't feel... I, first of all, I said to my manager, never call me with chart positions. And I never really wanted to look at that or read reviews or read anything. That's always been my policy. Nothing to do with business. Nothing to do with... I never had A&R. You know, I just did my thing. But you knew getting on stage that the crowds were getting bigger. And well, that- yeah. You know, I was getting over my stage fright and being self-conscious. I didn't want to be self-conscious, so I try not to... Just I just tried to do what I had to do, and like in 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 so the first three albums all had hits on them. Yeah, yeah. But we weren't catering to anything. No, it I just know. happened I to work busy. that way. Yeah, I, I know, mean, eventually I'm we weren't to, having uh, hits, and I did try to cater. <laughs> but you know, that what, was a long time. What album did that start on? Well, that's when I did um, "I'll Stand by You" with uh, Billy and Tom. Yeah, Tom Kelly and Billy Steinberg. Yeah, and that was when I was said, "Well, hang on a minute, I'm not on the radio anymore," you know, and I didn't like it. Yeah, because okay. I'm about radio. Right. That was always about. That's why I was okay to have my first single be that, that Kinks cover. And all my punk friends were like, "What are you doing? What happened to your songs?" And I was like, "Yeah, but this is a better single." Right. You know, I had a radio mentality. Right. You wanted um, to stay relevant, and I wanted Nick Lowe to produce it. Um, but um, and then, like, at what point did all the tra- like? What time? To- at what point did uh, in the in did Jimmy Scott pass away? And uh, well, Jimmy, uh, we fired Pete in the beginning of 1983. Yeah, because he got too smacked out. Yeah, and that was that was the worst time, obviously, because we had to tell him. And uh, anyway, and then Jimmy was dead three days later oh my from a God. drug overdose. And that was in '83. So yeah. So and you'd already recorded "Learning to Crawl." No. No. No, "Learning to Call- Crawl" was a reference to that. To getting so out of we that. had to uh, to starting over. We had to, and I was pregnant with, then I had a little kid now, so um, I had to, uh, yeah. <laughs> you say that like, it was like, now I got I got this. Well, you know, I was, I'd never even held a baby, and I had to deal with all this stuff and yeah. keep my band alive, and they just died on me, you know. How, <laughs> Pete and Jimmy, Jimmy, uh, then Pete died eight months later, and the last time I saw him was at Jimmy's funeral. So he wasn't happy. Obviously, we had to find, it was all fucked up. That's what happens with drugs. Yeah. All fucked up. But it wasn't necessarily surprising. Well, it's never surprising when someone dies, dies, you know. But you knew there were drugs everywhere. You know that that's always a... Yeah, yeah. And you just have to deal with it. You just have to live with the fact. Because, I mean, everyone was... You know when you have a band member who's using drugs, there's nothing you can really do, right? Yeah, we were all using drugs. Right. You know, you can't really... And that was the risk. That's the deal. And when you had the baby, was this a surprise baby? No, okay. no, no. I, I was, you know, th- at that point I was, yeah, you know, I, yeah. was, I, I wanted this. I thought I was going to get married and everything. But anyway. To Ray. Yeah. Um, and is that, um, how is that, uh, how is that kid? Good, thank you. Good. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so now you got a baby. You got uh, you Yeah, and I had to, tragedy. you know, and all of a sudden, the, you know, and then Jimmy died. And then after we just fired Pete and it was. It wasn't and the, the best of times, and the and but the the next album you pulled out, you transcended. I mean, that was a good record. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> and now well, I guess what? Well, yeah, uh, learning to call. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, you know, we kept. I mean, what can you do? 
you have to you you know you have to keep living so and how do you like now that you're um like after you've you've gone through this period and i've talked to uh to um musicians that have had you know where you have this amazing momentum and then you know, this music changes in a way or or what well, domesticity kind of you know kills it off that that doesn't help on your side well, on anyone's side. Right. But I mean, and just me, me what being people... a mother and having to be, you know, like a sort of single parent and stuff, you know, obviously that's your, if anything, it's given me a longevity or that's how I like to think of it. Because uh-huh. I didn't, you know, burn myself out too fast and just relentlessly keep making records because I had to really take my time. Um, but you eventually did, you know, get married and like, did did you see that settling down? Uh, that never happened. It didn't happen? No, you never it got never married. worked. Oh, I, never well, worked. I did, I did have yeah. a few failed attempts <laughs> yeah um yeah, yeah but um yeah i mean you know mm-hmm. I, but i kept my the music going so yeah they were always putting out records other. so now how old are your kids are they're older they're now. like around 30 each of them now. so now you and you come up with this uh the the stockholm record i just listened to yesterday and it's great thank you and and you're you're back in in performing mode and yeah. I, I don't guess you ever left really though not so much i've pretty much been out on the road doing a lot of touring and you know a lot of yeah i how's this, i've stayed on it pretty much how's this record different i mean it, it is a solo record which is different right? well it's called a solo record but it's not that different than anything i've done to be honest i just happened to meet someone and lived in Stockholm so I kept going over there and then I worked with some guys over there most of it's done with Bjorn Yitling and a couple of songs I just got into this collaboration mode where writing with someone that I didn't know became really fun I tried it with Tom Kelly and Billy Steinberg and it was great I mean even when I met Bob Dylan years ago he said you know I got some tunes. And, you know, I was like, well, I don't know how to write with someone. I didn't know what to say to him, you know. I didn't know. I wouldn't have known how to sit down and write with someone else. He wanted to collaborate? Well, I think he was, you know, inviting yeah. that. Uh-huh. Um, Where'd you meet him? Backstage at a... Bill Graham set it up. Bill Graham called and said, do you want to see... Come back and, you know, so you want to see this Dylan show? Yeah. And, and I was like, well, yeah. What year was that? Eighty. 80- Three eighty four. So you knew Bill, like because we mentioned. Yeah, I knew you, Bill. Yeah, he was a he was a, a. We had conversations saying, "Hey, you know, we should do take you know get a whole bunch of bands like they used to do with those soul reviews and take them right across the states." And I'd have conversations like that with him. Yeah. Anyway, so um, but I didn't really know how to collaborate, and I. You wrote all your own songs by yourself. At first, yeah, just with a guitar. I mean, they weren't very good, but when I brought them to Jimmy Scott and the band, they they transformed them into something that sounded great. That's collaborating. Yeah, but I mean, as far as the initial writing of the song, I like to did actually it. I playing very... with hooks or playing with phrasing. And, yeah, well, and... they added all that, but you know, right. I had to come up with the the lyric, the thing. Yeah. Well, you know, the song and say, "Here's the song," and then they would make it interesting. And um, how do you? How are you collaborating now? That that's well, now different. I can just go in and say, "What do you got?" You know, and the guy might say, "Well," I mean, he might whistle something into a phone, and I'll say, "All right, yeah. leave it with me for a half an hour." And you'd work and it out can, vocally. Yeah. I, you know, there's all sorts of ways you could do it, but I mean, I found it's more fun than sitting alone and doing it. Sure, and, you know, and it's just it's kind of isolating sometimes. I mean, it's 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 a it's very rewarding writing songs, and I suppose it's the thing I like the most. But um, anyway, so I went to Stockholm with Bjorn. Yeah, but they could only he could only work for two or three days at a time because he was busy. So I kept going back and forth, and then Jocki Olhund, who is another guy I met there, I wrote a couple tunes with him. Adding the Blue is one of them. Um, 
And now I just think, oh, and they they wouldn't. I said, come on, you guys, let's get in a band and like take this on the road. Yeah. And we were gonna call. I was gonna call us the Russian icons, uh-huh. and then they they wouldn't leave their wives and their bands and their studios. Huh. To be with me, so uh. I, I guess I'm losing my touch. <laughs> I could get them to leave their life. <laughs> so, yeah. so I had to, you know, go back to London, and that was why it's got just my name on it. Right. But so you spent a lot of time in Stockholm. Had you been there before? Well, yeah, to play, but I hadn't really, you know, I only went there to. Work. Is it amazing? Is it relaxing? It's gorgeous. It's yeah, beautiful. it's amazing. But I mean, I was in a hotel in the studio, hotel and oh, studio, right, and then, right. you know, airport, gate, studio, train. Right. You know, I, I spent a lot of time on my own. Right. With, probably too much to be healthy but that's another story um and uh that's what i ended up with that's talk and it's a kind of i suppose you could say a way of rebooting my brand and let's face it that's what it is these days you know you have to keep your thing alive and i mean for example i did a show uh, at a festival called the latitude festival in london uh outside of london actually um a few months ago and i was on the same bill as um the black keys and Haim. Mm-hmm. and uh, Tame Impala. Now, if I'd gone out as the Pretenders, I probably wouldn't have got on that bill. They probably would have thought it was too old of a band. Right. But, be, you know, because it was just me, I kind of snuck in there, and it was something different. So, you know, in a way, that's why I say it's given me some longevity, because I haven't really done that much when you think about it. I haven't done as much as, like, Elvis Costello's probably made 40 albums. I, I think he's probably putting out one every few months. <laughs> yeah, but see, I don't. Yeah. I, don't I haven't had the time, and also I goof off a lot more than he does. Well, how were you received on that bill? Did you feel when good. you perform? Yeah, good. I mean, the audience wasn't really there. It, I was on probably around one in the afternoon, oh, so right. it was maybe an older audience. And then uh, Tame Impala. Then more kids came in, and then Heim, Heim, and um, notice how I pronounce it the proper way: girls, my Valley girl friends. Heim, Heim. They're the little Valley girls here from L.A. They're great. Yeah, they're great. And the reason they're great is because they've been on the road. They took their shit on the road for the last two years, so they're really playing. They're yeah. sisters, right? They're these you know little girls from the Valley that are you know, and their dad's Israeli. They're awesome because you, they're playing. That's right. it. When a band goes on the road and plays, they get good. Get tight. And I mean, then then the Black Keys. What a success story they are. You yeah. know, Because they've been out doing the same thing. That doesn't happen very much where people work their way up because they get out and they keep playing. But anyway, on this Latitude Festival, I mean, I was with a, a, an incarnation of this band, the Will Travel Band, and I. Um, who are those guys? Well, I've now got James uh, Walborn, who was the guy who I've been playing with in the Pretenders for a few years. Uh huh. And some other guys, a, a Danish drummer. Um, Chris, solid. Uh, very solid. Chris Son, none of the guys that played on that album. See, I had to put a band together right. to showcase the Stockholm album. I really wasn't sure how I was going to do that. So, what do you do? You you rehearse for how long to get tight? A couple weeks. Yeah, and then you know we showcase that album, and then from there, I didn't know what I was going to do because I didn't really have. The, I wasn't sure what I was going to do, but it evolved where I got offered a few things. So I thought, well. I guess if I, I can do some of my old tunes, even though they're pretenders, because they're, they're my songs, why not? Why wouldn't you? Well, yeah. So I did that. And then I got some more offers. Oh, if you're going to do some old stuff, then we you can have another gig. So, sure. So, and you know, um, there's no, I mean, you feel good playing those songs? Which ones? Your pretender songs? Yeah, as long as the audience is new, of course. They love it, don't they? They love it. If anyone is, if the, you know, that's how people can, I suppose, go on stage in a play for two years and do the same play every night because every night's a new audience, well, so it's at, new. It's look new at the again. Rolling Stones. Well, yeah, I'm not. You know, <laughs> yeah, I'm there. I always wonder 
because because even somebody like you who has integrity and you have a you know a sensibility around you know what music is is that there's well, no you're, you don't know that for sure i kind of do well i'm not i maybe i'm projecting but but what i'm saying is that there's no shame in playing great songs that are your well, song no, who's ashamed you yeah. know yeah i was wondering that. already <laughs> yeah that's it but obviously, if you're doing, I mean, like I said, this this is an art form that's pretty dumbed down. I mean, you know, right. you see some people on documentaries and they're playing their tunes to a big audience and think, "That's come on, man, it's not even that good." Yeah, you, that happens all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and it's just like mega huge, and like a sometimes lot of, they're not even really playing. Well, you know, or you wish they weren't. Yeah. Um, but you know, and then a lot of these now because it's all been plundered so much you see documentaries on the greats and they right. do rewrite their own history sure. where they were the biggest most important band and a lot of this was just M.O.R. stuff you know What's I mean that? I wish Karen Carpenter was around because she was considered the, the Carpenters were considered very saccharine M.O.R. they weren't taken very What's seriously Middle of the Road oh, okay, A.O.R. It. I don't yeah. know what you no, call it that's fine Middle of the Road's good yeah, I not, just didn't know it's not different. very yeah. cutting edge right. not really sure. rock sure um and uh, and you wish she was alive for what? To yeah, defend? to get her due because she was one of the greatest singers who ever lived. You yeah, know? And people yeah. didn't. Of course, she was taken seriously because they sold a lot of records. Right, and people loved them. But they were categorized. They were categorized as being, yeah. you know, very yeah. much like the Beach Boys. Thought we thought that they were too squeaky clean. Right. Little did we know that they were not very squeaky clean at all. Right. And you they know, had but the that. music was very all American. Right, right. Oh yeah, I can't. It's hard for me to listen to some Beach Boys because I can't. I can't handle how heavy Brian's heart is sometimes. Right, but at the time when they came out, you yeah, know, you it was all. It was like, yeah. I wish they all could be Cam, but we were like, yeah. what the fuck, <laughs> you know, because we were taking. You know, we didn't. Yeah, where's the edge? We thought. Yeah. That was nice. Yeah. But in fact, it wasn't very nice. No, as we not can, at all. We know that now. It's a little brutal. So, when you get a bit of hindsight dare I say and you can look over you know with a bit of perspective you see these things in a different light ABBA great band great tunes yeah not taken seriously at the time because it was a little too nice right but you can't deny a great melody no <laughs> and you can't deny a good song no I, I was just listening to uh, what's his name Tim Harden the folks oh, oh amazing my, I can't even fucking deal I bought this record out of because nowhere. Because he was a Vietnam vet. He's yeah. a junkie. I bought a record that just on the cover, and I didn't know anything about Tim Harden. I knew he, uh, now I know he wrote some great songs, but I just bought this record on a fluke, and I'm like, what is this? And I went down a Tim Harden rabbit hole just last night. And oh, to watch amazing. Him, to watch him perform at, at Woodstock, he, like, he is on the nod yeah. heavy. But he was had one of the, see, the thing is they could sing. Yeah. He had one of the greatest great. voices ever. Ever Tim Harden. Yeah. And he wrote those beautiful songs. But like the singing thing has changed a lot. It's all changed. Because back then, guys who were 25 years old, they wanted to sound like men. Right. I mean, look at Otis, how he, authoritative oh he was. Yeah. He was gone by the time he was 27. And he had this, all of his music, you felt this manly authority. Yeah. You know, now these guys are like, you know, 40 and they're still like little. How do you get behind it? Um... So, so yeah, you're doing what you do, and like, and, and I did you ever think to? Because the one thing that that I asked myself when I listened to it was, you know, on the slower numbers where the melodies are are you know, you know, kind of very deliberate and and slower sort of grooves to them, they're very powerful. Did you ever think to do like an entire record of 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 slower songs or or, or not ballads, but just something? Yeah, that, I got two girls in Akron that would probably come and like lynch me if I did that. 
You know, I have been warned for years to stay stay clear of the ballads. Keep, you know, keep rocking. Yeah, I mean the girls that put the Pretenders archives together, you know. That would be so. You got to answer to them. At the end keep, of the day, they keep a low profile. Uh-huh. They kept my thing alive for years. Yeah. But before there was, we had websites or any of that. They uh-huh. were the first ones on it. But if I start getting a little too ballad heavy, that then I hear from them. Right, but you thought about it? No, I I haven't thought about it okay. because you know no one wants to hear that shit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All I mean, right. this is you know this is supposed to be a rock band. But, I you get know, it. You, you get you sneak them in once in a while when you can get away with it. All right. Well, it was great talking to you and and have fun on the tour. That's the plan. Did you feel good? You're all right. Sure. All right. Thanks for talking, Chrissy. How cool is that? She's amazing. I was so happy to talk to her. Um, all right, go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF Pod needs. You can get the app, you know, and upgrade like I told you about at the beginning. I will be at Largo on January 8th. You can go to Largo-LA.com for tickets. Oh, my God. Not even a day off nicotine. I'm losing my fucking mind. I don't even know if I can play guitar. I know you've all been waiting for that. Huh. I just moved a bunch of knobs. That was crazy. Notice how clean I'm keeping it? No no distortion. You know why? Because I'm not ashamed. I don't need to distort shit. I'm so not ashamed, I'm just going to hit it and let it repeat itself over and over again. Just give me a nicotine lozenge. God damn it. God, no. Boomer lives.